0: Welcome back to the Milkman of St. Gaffs. This is a serialized podcast, so if this is your first time, you should go back and start with episode one. The very big exciting news for this show is that it is now a part of the Rusty Quill Network, home of shows like We're Alive, I Am an SQ, and The Silt Verses. What exactly does it mean to be part of the Rusty Quill family? It means that they'll be helping with advertising and distribution of the show, they have not acquired the show and have no input to the creative process. Patrons will still get ad free shows and nothing will change in that respect. But it is a very exciting development and I'd like to say thank you very much to Rusty Quill. I would also like to give some shout outs to new patrons Rob McNee, Department of Lactic Affairs Regional Manager, Anonymous Yarn Boy, Fly Sprayer, Ben Milne, Fly Sprayer, and Gabriel Picard, Fly Sprayer. There are also two important promotions. Kim Driggs has been promoted from Fly Sprayer to Milkman White Badge. Lise Kuhlmann has been promoted from Milkman White Badge to Department of Lactic Affairs Radio Clerk. So congratulations for those promotions. And thank you also to Roberta Leibovitz for buying me a coffee on coffee.com. Again, patrons get ad-free episodes, access to the patron-only podcast Once Out of Nature, which has three episodes so far, higher tiers can get stickers, uh, an exclusive Department of Lactic Affairs mug, there's also a shop if you want to buy t-shirts. You can find out more at patreon.com slash howiemilkman or at howiemilkman.com. And just before we start with the episode, I wanted to take this opportunity to tell you about a fantastic show that I like very much, that is also part of the Rusty Quill Network, and also set in a small town that's full of interesting and sometimes horrible people and things, The Town Whispers. If you love horror podcasts like Old Gods of Appalachia, The Magnus Archives, or A Voice from Darkness, you'll love this show. The Town Whispers is a narrative horror podcast That will tell the many stories hidden behind the rain and the fog of a town called the Fort, where eldritch terror and folk horrors meet. Delivered to you each week and chapter by chapter, the Town Whispers unveils the sinister workings of a mysterious cohort of entities called the Long Shadows and their grip over the Fort. You'll be introduced to the doomed Lapont family, learn what hides behind the walls of Riverside Sanatorium. And if you're lucky, discover who rests in the mausoleum built for the ones who will never die. Tune in each week as you find out what becomes of the townsfolk of the fort and the terrifying plans that have been set in motion since the town's first boundaries were drawn. With over 90 episodes, I got hooked right away and the show just keeps getting better. Listen to The Town Whispers every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And with that, let's get to episode 21 of The Milkman of St. Gaffe's called Awakening. It's time for The Milkman of St. Gaffe's starring Howie the Milkman. I woke up around midnight i noticed that if i told myself when to wake up i'd wake up right about then i really didn't want to get up and for a second i just lay there listening to the clock tower down the pier sounding 12. i just about drifted off again but then i remembered why i'd woken up and a ball of fear grabbed my stomach i picked up the lantern i'd borrowed a tin pail and some matches I'd gone to sleep in my clothes to save time, and I snuck out of the building as quietly as I could. It was dark out, no stars. A bunch of low clouds had been hanging over the town for a few days now. It was still humid and stifling, even at midnight. No one really kept any lights on here like they did in Ming's Bite, and there were no gas lamps, so I had to light my lantern to see where I was going. Something the magician said kept rolling around in my head, that I could redeem myself with one decent act. I knew it was true, and that I should have been more diligent in my duty to my country and the milkmen, but my feelings for Stormy were just too strong, and I'd made up my mind not to go after Mr. Greenwood. That made me feel pretty guilty, and I knew Corwin was going to keep getting annoyed at me, but I had a plan, a good plan, and I thought I'd be able to keep Stormy happy, and at the same time not have to get Mr. Greenwood sent off to jail, or worse. i decided to just go through the motions of gathering evidence against Mr. Greenwood. But instead I'd try to frame Dr. Barrett. I knew it wouldn't work, but it would buy me some time. And while all that was going on, and as long as Mr. Greenwood kept away from any milkmen, I'd work on going underground and finding the flogisterian on my own. The way I saw it, Mr. Corwin was here really to work on the thermalizer. If I could keep him focused on that, he'd probably forget all about any unruly citizens. I was sure his bosses were much more interested in getting the machine working than they were about someone like Mr. Greenwood. I couldn't really tell Stormy everything that was going on, but I told her I had a plan and she trusted me explicitly. I'd even told Mr. Greenwood that he was really in grave danger and that he should keep his head under the covers, so to speak, and he agreed. Walking along the main street, I looked down Mercy and could see, a couple of blocks away, the hulking shape of Mrs. Pyman's house. It was still half sunk in the ground and tilted over. It gave me an eerie feeling. Come to think of it, I hadn't seen her for a while. Ever since she got mad at Whelan... I kept going and it occurred to me that St. Gaff's had changed somehow. I used to feel welcome and at home walking around here even in the middle of the night, but now everything felt gloomier, like the town didn't want me anymore and was getting ready to spit me out somewhere. I tripped a little on one of the new cracks in the sidewalk. As I was recovering I thought I saw something on the roof of a shop, a gargoyle. But then, when I looked again, it wasn't there anymore. My mind was probably just toying with me because of what I was about to do. Then finally, a friendly face. Billy was glowering at me with his broken face from the wall of the Billings Memorial Milk Station. The whole city seemed to be crumbling these days, and the Mason hadn't done a very good job with poor old Billy. Don't worry, Billy. I said, if I ever get some money or if I'm ever in charge here, I'll make sure they fix you up properly. I think he appreciated the sentiment. But I had work to do. In the parking lot, I moved the boards that were covering up the hole. I looked around as if to bid farewell to the world up here, but it had started to spit rain, so I hurried up and sat on the edge of the hole, held my lantern up, and slid down. (gasps) I was surprised to find myself on a rope bridge. Someone must have built it, and it connected with the staircase that led down from Corwin's office a little ways off. I wanted to surprise Corwin with my initiative, so I decided that instead of asking him and going down the stairs, I'd just take the hole in the ground, and that way if I didn't find anything, he'd never know about it anyways. I moved my way along the bridge, then got on the stairs. They creaked as I went down, but I was happy to take the stairs instead of just sliding blindly down somewhere. It was pitch black, the kind of blackness that gets into your ears and mouth. I knew if I screamed the sound wouldn't even go anywhere. And for all the light that the lantern gave off, I might as well have been on the bottom of the ocean. And so, it was really weird when the sound of my footsteps started echoing. I stopped for a second. And a second later, the steps stopped, too. I thought maybe someone was following me, but no one was there when I turned around. That would have been too obvious. So I kept going. I still couldn't see the bottom. But I started to smell... stale smoke? Half-rotten bacon? Motor oil? The smells got stronger, and the echoes got louder. I could feel him behind me, hear the labored breathing, But I didn't dare turn around, until I got a sharp poke in the back. I swung around scared and came face to face with a face full of black teeth, waxy skin, a tattered, half-burned military uniform. Why aren't you with your unit? My unit? Where's your rifle, soldier? I'm not a soldier. You absent without leave? No. He's a goddamn spy. This was another voice. I turned to see another soldier, a hole where his left eye used to be, a piece of shrapnel still sticking in there. What do you think you're doing wandering around out here? I looked around. I was on a beach, gray sand stretching right to the horizon on one side and gray, choppy water on the other, and the sky was chalky white with no sun. Bits of bony driftwood were scattered around. There were about a dozen of these soldiers, all dead and damned by the looks of them, and they were walking over to us. I'm looking for Mammotha, the cow. The soldiers looked at each other. Mammotha, one said, and out over the waves there was a flash like lightning, but for a second I saw huge gold-rimmed spectacles on the horizon. We too seek the blasted bovine beast. So you'll help me? A couple of them chuckled. You'll be helping us, mate. Somehow, it slowly became night, and the soldiers danced around a fire and sang ancient-sounding songs in praise of the man with the spectacles. The ocean was still and the sky was clear, but without stars or moon, it seemed to suck up any light. The soldiers nibbled on sand fleas they caught, and I saw one, with his leg bent oddly, chewing on his big toenail. Later they slept on the beach, on their bedrolls. I closed my eyes and tried to sleep, but the bedroll they gave me was full of bugs and fleas that kept biting my ankles, and I couldn't get comfortable on the sand. I rolled over. The soldier next to me was asleep, with his eyes wide open and blank. His mouth was open too frozen in a shocked expression like he'd just been hit by a shell but he was snoring like the rest of them the snores echoed out over the water and it sounded like an army of demented frogs in some lonely swamp I stayed wide-eyed and awake until whatever passed for dawn here began to lighten the sky the soldiers hadn't moved at all the campfire was just ash But there was a deep, pounding noise, getting louder. The soldier next to me got up, adjusted his pants to keep his guts from falling out. He pointed at the horizon. There was a cloud of dust. Wake up boys, here they come. And sure enough, before my brain could really figure out what was going on, a herd of huge mad-eyed cows came running towards us. Most of the soldiers hadn't woken up and were trampled to pieces under the stampede. I ran into the water. The soldiers that had gotten up ran too, but along the beach where they were gored by the wild cow's horns. And just like that, the cows were gone, up the beach, leaving only the gory carcasses of the dead behind. I found my pail. It was battered, but okay. And I set off after the cows. I was hungry and thirsty, but I walked all day. The shoreline never changed, the terrain monotonous. But in the distance I could see columns reaching up so high that I couldn't see their tops. They were far apart. A couple jutted right up out of the ocean, too. When the darkness came again, I kept going. I saw them as little specks on the horizon close to a column. I crept closer and closer... They were all lined up, sleeping on their feet on the edge of the water facing out to sea. They were all about two or three times as big as a regular cow, but I didn't see the one known as Mammotha, but I thought it was still worth a try. I snuck under one and got a few squirts into the pail, maybe two pints worth, until I heard someone running. I turned and it was a crazed looking farmer in overall. Hey, get off of my cows! Then he cupped his hands around his mouth and yelled, Go, boss! The cows woke. One ran headlong into a column, and the one I'd been milking bolted and kicked me right up out of the hole into the parking lot. It was still night, but somehow I'd managed to keep hold of the pail. A kid at school once had a toy, a rubber ball with a metal ball inside it. It would wobble in all sorts of unexpected ways. The phlogisterion in my pail moved like that, like it had a momentum all its own at the bottom of the pail. I got an hour, or maybe a bit more, of sleep before work. The first thing I did when I woke up was to look and see that it wasn't just a dream. But there it was, the bucket of phlogisterion. I threw on my uniform and took off without even having breakfast. I couldn't wait to show Corwin. I knocked on his door when I got to the office, and Corwin was already up. What is it, Howie? Sir, I got the idea last night to try again to go underground. I just went ahead and went down the hole in the parking lot out back, and I actually found some phlogisterian. His eyes lit up. Without a word, he grabbed the pail from my hands and looked down into it. But then his brows furrowed. That's all? That's all I could get. He pondered for a moment. Okay, Howie, good work but I'm afraid we're going to need more than this. Quite a bit more. This made me pretty nervous. It had been hard enough already to get this much of the stuff. I see. Alright, I'll try again as soon as I can. I'll try again tomorrow night. I left the pail with him. It was too bad I hadn't gotten more phlogisterian, but on the other hand, I smiled to myself, because I was sure my plan was working. There had been no talk about Mr. Greenwood. As I went on my rounds, I felt like Billy gave me a wink and I was feeling pretty good. Even the gloom that was oozing from everywhere in the town last night seemed to be gone. I'd played all of this just right and threaded my way between some pretty complicated hoops. I'd found a way to have Stormy and to not get fired, and if they really did get the thermalizer working, I could probably get any kind of promotion I wanted. The rain clouds were gone and the sun was smiling right in my face as I went about my rounds. And it was Thursday so I had the weekend to look forward to. After work, I went to Stormy's place. Howie, how was work? Work was great. You're looking a bit tired there. I was up late last night working on a project. A secret project. But I'm feeling fine. Well, we're just about ready here. And just then, Mr. Greenwood came down the stairs. He was carrying some sort of machine with tubes and a kind of balloon attached. Hi, Mr. Greenwood. How are you holding up? Oh, not too bad, not too bad. I've always been a bit of a homebody, staying around the house all the time. Doesn't bother me too much. Mr. Greenwood mostly stayed in after I told him the milkmen were after him. Is that the machine? "It It is. I've shown Stormy how to use it. Outside, Stormy and I were walking. She had a big purse with her, with the machine in it. Did you bring the other thing? I asked. I did. And she patted her bag to let me know it was in there. Out of nowhere, I was possessed with the urge to grab her and give her a big kiss, which is exactly what I did. Someone's in a good mood. I am in a good mood. I think our plan's working. Corwin hasn't asked about your dad. I just feel like the luckiest guy alive. That's great. You ready for the next part of the plan? I am. We frame Dr. Barrett and then my dad's home free. Exactly, I said. Just then, we arrived at Dr. Barrett's place and I knocked on the door. Hi, Howie. Hi, Stormy. We brought the machine my father made. Come in. Let's have a look, shall we? We went into the room where McMurtle was still lying. Stormy was showing Dr. Barrett how to attach Mr. Greenwood's breathing machine to an oxygen tank and then onto McMurtle's face, but the doctor couldn't fit the machine onto the oxygen tank properly. I'll need a special tool. It's in the shed. I'll be back in a moment. He turned to leave and Stormy piped up. Can I come? I've never seen the operating room. The doctor smiled. Sure, come along. As they left, she turned and winked at me. Now is my chance. She'd left her purse, and as soon as they were gone, I opened it and found the Morris code machine. It was just a small thing, an old one that Mr. Greenwood had tinkered with a long time ago and forgotten about. I shoved it in a cupboard. Our plan was to say that we'd seen this communication device at the doctor's place, and that maybe he'd been using it to send subversive messages to the enemy. After stashing the Morris machine, I looked over at the pecker head. He was already hooked up to an old-fashioned breathing machine that had gears and things like a clock. The doctor's idea was that if they could pump some extra oxygen into the guy, it would maybe help him more than the regular air he was breathing now. "'Well, Albert old chum, I got the job and I got the girl and you're just lying there like some sort of idiot. Who's the smart one now?' Stormy and Dr. Barrett still weren't back and I was getting bored. I know I shouldn't have, but my curiosity got the better of me. I squeezed the breathing tube, only for a second or two, just to see what would happen. And to my surprise, McMurtle started making all sorts of choking, coughing sounds. I didn't know if he was about to die or wake up, and I panicked. Dr. Barrett, come quick! Then I kind of slapped McMurtle in the face a couple times. Hey, McMurtle, you all right? He coughed some more, and then his eyes opened. Dr. Barrett, I shouted, and the doctor and Stormy came running in. He opened his eyes. Stormy gasped, and the doctor rushed over and lifted McMurtle's eyelids a bit. He coughed and spluttered some. Let's give him some room. Stormy and I stood back. Albert, can you hear me? Albert. Slowly but surely, he nodded his head. Water. The doctor gave him a sip of water from a glass that was sitting there. Just a bit. McMurtle laid back, bleary eyes like he was figuring out how to breathe on his own again, and the doctor filled him in. You've been in a coma for quite some time. McMurtle just nodded. Then the doctor turned to me. What did you do, Howie? Nothing, I was just talking to him as usual... "'Telling him we missed him down at the station and just like that he opened his eyes. "'Is he going to be okay?' Stormy asked. "'You know, I think he is going to be okay. "'He was coherent. No sign of brain damage so far. He's very lucky.' "'Outside, Stormy was all excited. "'It's going to be great to have McMurtle back, don't you think? "'I cursed myself for being such an idiot. "'Why on earth did I have to interfere with him?' Well, what's done is done, I thought. I told myself it probably wouldn't change anything anyways. But when I got home, I felt like I'd had the wind knocked out of me. I had some leftovers for dinner and just fell asleep before the sun even went down. The neighbor's stick banging on the wall reverberated through my dreams, me walking underground surrounded by those huge pillars. But something way up high was banging into them and making them shake. Bits of rubble and bricks were falling all around. It didn't bother me, though, somehow. I woke with a start. I'd been drooling. I could tell it was just before I had to get up. It was quiet and still. I still had my uniform on, and even my boots. The next day, my rounds passed uneventfully, and after work, Stormy had decided that we should go see McMurtle again at Dr. Barrett's. When we got there, his parents were there, too. They were all blubbering and overjoyed that their dear boy was feeling better. His mom even patted me on the head, which I didn't appreciate at all. Oh, Howie, the doctor told us you were there when he woke up, talking about his job. I bet that's what woke him up, missing his old life. Glad I could help, I muttered. McMurdle was sitting up in bed, smiling at us. Well, we'll get going and leave you kids to talk. I think that'll be really good for him, his mother said and then she and McMurdo's dad left. Stormy sat on the edge of his bed and felt his forehead. I just stood there. So what was it like? Did you dream? I think so. I remember walking with an old man through a garden. He told me everything would be okay, and then someone was tinkering with a machine. I was explaining that he was doing it wrong, and then he pushed me into some water, and I couldn't breathe, and then I woke up. My face went red when he said all of this. Howie, what's new at the station? Oh, not too much. I've been promoted, of course. Red badge. I was delighted to see him flinch when I said this. We're planning on giving away chocolate milk after church on Sunday. Chocolate milk? It's a new thing. For some reason, McMurtle got all contemplative when I mentioned this. Who knows what he was thinking. Later that evening, Stormy went home for dinner, and I just went walking around. I thought I'd sit in the square for a bit, but when I got there, it was all roped off and the fountain was broken and tilted to one side. The water was still flowing. Inspector Piercy was there and he was carrying a rifle. So were the other police there. What's going on? I shouted. Another blasted sinkhole opened in the night. We've got to keep watch against anything coming up until we can get someone to fill this in. So it's bigger than the one at Mrs. Pyman's house? much but don't you go telling everyone that i felt the old familiar pangs of guilt and worry but i wasn't quite sure why i told myself that everything was still fine but i couldn't quite get rid of the clouds of gloom hanging over my head i just kept walking around sure mcmurtle had woken up and sure holes and cracks were appearing all over st gaff's but the holes weren't my problem i still had stormy Things were good at work, and I had a lot to look forward to. Sunday was the big day. I didn't go see Father Whelan's service since I had to help Frank and Beaver with the setup, and they of course never go to church. There was a big barrel with a bunch of ice in it, and then a number of bottles of chocolate milk. We had a little stand, all white painted wood. It was a bit of a cloudy day. Here they come, Frank said as people started filing out of church. Why we gotta do this, Beaver asked in a philosophical kind of way. Gotta keep the kids happy, boss man says. Go on, Beeve, you start. Beaver smiled as best he could. I'm not sure if I've ever seen anything quite so scary, to be honest. But he filled up a glass and walked over to the first little kid he saw. Chocolate milk. But the kid just started crying. Come on, take it! he insisted, but the kid just ran into her mother's arms. Frank was chuckling to himself. <laughs> he filled a glass and tried himself, but the first kid's reaction turned out to be contagious. All the kids looked really nervous. I took my cup and offered it to a little boy who was standing off to the side of it. Here, take it. It's good. He started running and I ran after him. In these cases, persistence is the key, but the kid's father intervened leave him alone, his father shouted at me, so I just let it go. Corwin was standing at the scene with an inscrutable look. It seemed like the milkman's community outreach effort wasn't working quite right. Beaver was shouting, what's wrong with you? It's chocolate, it's good. Shadows crossed over Corwin's face. But then the sun came out from behind the clouds and it was right in my eyes. I held up my hands to shield my view and then I heard it, Hey kids, what time is it? It's time to get chocolatey! Some kids giggled, and there was Albert McMurtle, smiling ear to ear and doing some sort of ridiculous walk, arms and legs flailing. Without acknowledging me, Frank, or Beaver, McMurtle came over, poured three cups of chocolate milk, and then, laughing and making faces like a fool, handed them out to the children, who were now smiling, their dim-witted eyes glistening at the peckerhead. Don't forget, kids, tell your parents to order a bottle of this chocolatey treat every week. McMurtle! Corwin shouted. I'd told him McMurtle was up from his coma, but no one expected him back any time soon. And now Corwin was smiling, actually smiling. I don't think I'd ever seen such a thing before. Now that McMurtle had broken the ice, people were lining up to try out the novel treat. Corwin was getting ready to make a speech, but then there was another interruption. Don't touch that stuff. They're a pack of lying bastards. It was Mrs. Pyman, wild-eyed with her clothes looking like she just got them out of the town dump. Everyone turned. No one said anything. Everyone just got really quiet. I know what you milkmen are doing. I know what you did to my husband. I know what happened to Floor Sham, and I have proof. They're killers. Killers. They killed my husband. Beaver grabbed her under her arms and carried her away. As we were all watching her struggle in vain, Corwin spoke up. Thank you all for coming today. I'm glad you enjoyed the latest twist on our product. I do hope that it served as a sliver of light in these otherwise dark days. I do apologize for that outburst. We all know how much the pressures of war can affect us, especially the fairer sex. But the main thing for us is to stick together. We can't allow the powerful unity of our community to be compromised by baseless accusations. As soon as we start accusing each other, we are lost. We are all in this war together. And that means that all of us, each and every one, must be constantly on the lookout for any suspicious behavior, such as what we've just witnessed here. If you see anything, anything at all out of the ordinary... You pass the information along to your milkman, who will see that the proper authorities are alerted. And with that, please enjoy as much chocolate milk as you'd like. By this time, Whelan had emerged from the church and was standing beside me. He'd helped himself to a whole bottle of chocolate milk. Pretty good, he must have been a preacher in another life. On Monday afternoon, Corwin had me and McMurtle in his office. And that's when my whole world fell apart in front of me. The episode with Mrs. Pyman, it turned out, had bothered Corwin much more than he'd let on. I've had a chat with Albert, and he understands the importance of stamping out subversion wherever we find it. We can't have any more incidents like the one yesterday with that woman. The populace of this town is getting unruly. We need to make an example of someone, get these people back in line." And that is why, Howie, McMurtle will be taking over your route. Howie, you'll get your new route from Beaver in the morning. I glanced over and the stupid Packer head was nodding solemnly at me. All I could think about was shoving his annoying face in a toilet somewhere. McMurtle’s been apprised of the Greenwood situation and he's prepared to take up the case where you left off, hopefully, with quicker results. Also, Howie, there were complaints from the department about your radio transmissions. Something about asking for a red badge while making a coded transmission. I'd like you to take McMurtle up to the radio shed this week. Show him how everything works. Albert will be delivering the messages from here on out. McMurtle and I walked out of Corwin's office. The light outside hurt my eyes. I felt like my insides had been ripped out, but at least I had. Stormy said she'd meet us at the druggists, McMurtle said. When did he tell you that? Oh, she dropped by my house last night to check up on me. My parents always liked her. The rest of the afternoon was a blur. Stormy laughing and slapping McMurdo's knee, twirling her hair. I just sat there saying nothing. Outside, she knew what was going on. Don't be jealous, Howie. We're together. That doesn't mean I can't be friends with Albert. We used to all hang out. That was before Corwin gave him my route and pretty much my whole job. We're together, okay? We'll figure it out. So what if you're delivering milk to different people now? Sure, but guess who's in charge of finding evidence against your father now? She stopped. Oh, well my dad hasn't done anything, and I'm sure I can convince Albert to leave him alone. Sure, I said. Yeah, they throw about four million gallons. And before I knew it, there we were, driving up the mountain to the radio shed. McMurtle kept droning on about how many bottles of milk they produce every day in Ming's bite and all sorts of other irritating facts, but a new plan was forming in my head. When we got to the station, I looked up at the tower. Well, Albert, first thing you've got to do is check that the tower is in proper working order, I said. The weather can be pretty harsh up here and sometimes important parts can come unscrewed. Just wait here a second. I went into the shed and grabbed a big wrench. Then I said, In fact, now that I look, I can see that something looks loose up there. Do you see that loose wire? No, where? Right up there, by the top. He moved in front of me, squinting. I don't think I see anything. And while the idiot was looking up, I raised the wrench over my head.